0: Hello, this is Rob Shank, and you're listening to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this brave World War II-era Lutheran pastor, moral theologian, philosopher, Christian ethicist, you name it. In his short 39 years, Bonhoeffer fulfilled all those roles and more. And what we like to do in this podcast is explore the intersection between Bonhoeffer's insights, his ideas, his concepts and his spiritual sensibilities with the exigencies, the crises of our own time, particularly here in the United States, but also North America, the Western hemisphere, around the world, uh, which uh, all places that Bonhoeffer touched, uh, during his lifetime and his exploration. So welcome. It's great to have you here and today we're going to talk about an intersection that many people are reflecting on these days and that is uh, the intersection between evangelicals in the United States and the presidency of Donald J Trump. And helping me is my guest Dr. John Thea of Messiah College in Pennsylvania. He's an author He's an historian, teaches American history, and Professor Theo, welcome to Shank Talks, Sponhofer. thanks for being with me.
1: Thanks for having me, Rob. We have uh, been planning this for a while, so I'm glad it's finally working out.
0: Well, I think much to the benefit of the folks who are joining us listening in to this conversation, we're gonna talk about your book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, published by the venerable evangelical publishing house, Eerdmans, which I was really glad to see. But thanks for offering up this critique of this moment in American history, in world history, certainly in evangelical history. And to get us started, I'd like to go to your table of contents, because I think it says a lot about uh, what you put into this work. You have The Evangelical Politics of Fear, The Playbook, A Short History of Evangelical Fear, The Court Evangelicals, which is where I'd like to spend most of our time talking today, and then uh, Make America Great Again. And I hope to take you to the conclusion to help us uh, a little bit uh, in, in seeing your perspective after examining all of this. But first, I like our listeners to get to know our guests a little bit personally. What's your own story? Are you a cradle evangelical?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I came to faith in Christ as an evangelical when I was 16 years old. Um, we were talking a little bit before we went, uh, started recording. I, I grew up in a ethnic Catholic family in Northern New Jersey, right across the river from New York city, grew up in the New York metropolitan area. Um, my mom was Slovak. My dad was Italian. Uh, we, you know, there's pretty much Catholicism was the only game in town for us. Uh, did have it, my, my, my father converted to evangelicalism in his forties, uh, had a, had a born again experience, um, uh, at a Billy Graham crusade, believe it or not. And myself and my two, uh, brothers were all a year apart. Um, within a couple of years, also had conversion experiences, and we left the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church, on the other hand, was was uh, deeply formative in my life. I didn't go to Catholic school or 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 that, but I went to the catechism classes and so forth, and I think often uh, um, sort of gave me a, a moral grounding uh, that kind of set the stage for um, you know some of the some of my post conversion um thinking and christian living so uh i i developed a passion for going into the ministry at least that's where i thought i was heading uh so i went to a little bible college in philadelphia uh philadelphia college of bible the bible it was called back then uh today it's a liberal arts school known as cairn university uh went from there to trinity evangelical divinity school um and it's there where i sort of fell in love with uh church history religious history uh and really felt a call studying under the direction of some of the professors there particularly a church historian named john woodbridge to pursue um a career as a uh uh, as an american historian so i got my phd in american history from the state university of new york at stony brook Uh, I have been in the evangelical world my entire life. I'm married to the daughter of an evangelical free church uh, pastor. We attend an evangelical free church here in central Pennsylvania. We've always attended uh, evangelical congregations. And of course I teach at Messiah College, a a Christian college with uh, deep roots in uh, the evangelical movement. So uh, evangelicals are my tribe, so to speak. Uh, They are my people. Uh, they are the people who have had profound influence over the trajectory of my life uh, and my faith and the way I understand um, Christianity. So, uh, so yeah. So this book, believe me, was really, in some ways, uh, not entirely, but in some ways, a kind of uh, maybe a love letter, maybe a, 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 a statement to my tribe to say, you know, have we, what have we done? Uh, what are the consequences for the church of um, supporting Donald Trump in the way that they did?
0: Well, uh, first of all, no one could question your evangelical bona fides or your (laughs) pedigree. Uh, I think you know the subject of which you speak. Um, there's a lot of crossover here, by the way, we've got to really get to know one another because yeah. I was born in Montclair, New Jersey. Okay. My, folks, my folks met in Verona. We're talking right. about Northern New Jersey for all you non Jerseyites. And, uh, uh, your, your whole story of the immigrant family, my, uh, grandparents passed through Ellis Island. And, uh, so, uh, we, we've got a few things in common, and then you've got Stony Brook there, and there's a whole story there, but I won't bore our our uh, listening friends with any of that. I'll just, we, uh, uh,
1: we, um, we, we could talk more about this when the podcast is over at some other point. Yeah. My wife and I worked for seven years at the Stony Brook School, a Christian boarding school in Stony Brook, too. Oh, okay, yes, I'm
0: familiar with it. And yes. uh, by the way, uh, my conversion at age 16, uh, from a nominal Jewish home to, uh, to a born-again experience, uh, and uh, since then, uh, evangelical Christian uh, commitment. So uh, anyway, uh, yeah. we, we speak each other's language Wonderful. in many ways. So let me take you right away, if I may, to your chapter 4 in Believe Me, that you entitled Court Evangelicals. Can you give us a little history, first of all, about courts? We're not talking about law courts here. We're talking about a different kind of court, and you set that out beautifully in this chapter. Can you tell us, what do you mean by court evangelicals?
1: yeah sure I'm glad you asked because lately I've been talking to people different reporters and so forth who think the court evangelical term, which seems to have caught on a little bit uh, is something about uh, evangelicals interest in appointments to um the Supreme Court right or trump's supreme Court appointments it really I really have it really has nothing to do with that. Uh, You know, again, I mentioned I'm a historian and uh, it struck me as I was doing research for this book that, you know, every king, especially in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance era, uh, you know kings have courts right the court the courtiers, so to speak uh are the ones who largely attend uh to the king they tend to all of the monarchs needs um but even more importantly for this, the courtiers are there uh to puff the king up they're they're to the flatter the king uh they're there to tell the king what he wants to hear uh very rarely it, it, do you have uh people who are uh, visiting the king's court on a regular basis, who are there to speak truth to the king, uh, or to speak, uh, you know, a prophetic word uh, to the king. Uh, even in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, many, uh, many of the non courtiers would criticize the Christians who hung around uh, the king's court uh, merely to flatter him uh, and merely to bask in the power uh, that the king uh, was able to afford to them. So, so I'm taking that idea of the court, the courtier, the court clergy in some ways in the Renaissance and the Middle Ages, who are, again, roundly criticized by many of their peers for their flattery uh, and their compromising of their faith uh, in, the, in the halls of power. I'm using that term then to describe a, a group of American evangelicals you can call, they've often been referred to as Trump's Evangelical Advisory uh, Committee. Uh, these are well-known names. If you follow, uh, you know, uh, Trump and and the religious dimensions of his presidency. Uh, P- I'll, I'll name some of them, people like Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of Liberty University, Robert Jeffress, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Dallas, uh, Paula White, uh, the prosperity gospel preacher, Franklin Graham, obviously the son of the, the great evangelist Billy Graham, and we could continue to go on. Those are some of the big ones, uh, who uh, are regular visitors to the White House. They praise the King, the Donald Trump, right? They uh, they flatter him. Uh, they go out into the press and um, promote him among their fellow evangelicals. Uh, they are the so-called court evangelicals that I that I talk about. Now you can you can support Trump obviously and be an evangelical who supports Trump and not be a court evangelical. In fact, most of the eighty one percent of white evangelicals who voted for Trump in twenty sixteen were not court evangelicals. They've never been to the White House. But these are those leaders uh, who are translating uh, Trump's message uh, to the evangelical community. They have large followings in the evangelical community. They are in charge of large institutions within the evangelical community. And they are the ones who are uh, praising Trump, very rarely, if ever, do they speak any uh, negative words about Donald Trump, uh, and um, I thought it, I thought again, drawing on this history of medieval and Renaissance uh, Europe uh, i 've labeled them uh, the court evangelicals. well, I may
0: risk asking you uh, to move into another uh, professional realm here, a a new metier of sorts, uh, and that is uh, to maybe psychoanalyze our brothers and sisters who are serving in this way as court evangelicals, uh, to use your term. But uh, we are talking about our fellows here, and uh, you know, it begs a question what may actually be going on here? How do you analyze that? Maybe as an historian looking yeah. back over the church's history, yeah. uh, how do you see that? What what What's bringing about this phenomenon? Yeah. I, I have to tell you that I was with many of the people you named before, uh, during, and after both, mr trump's primary election and his general election to the presidency many of them quietly behind the scenes expressed at least uh surprise if not disappointment and some of them offense at his victories sure. a kind of regret uh because he was a second choice for virtually all of them that i know anyway Uh, or a third choice, and yet, uh, within only weeks, they had changed their dispositions considerably. Some of them were now fully behind him in an extraordinary way, as I had never seen them uh, behind a president, not even favorites like George W. Bush. How do you see that, or possibly explain it?
1: Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. You know the personal inside uh, feelings of these of these men and women. I, uh, of course, am an outsider looking at this uh, without sort of specialized knowledge or what was really going on in their heads. Um, you know, we historians are not, uh, as you mentioned. Um, uh, trained to be sort of psychoanalysts, but we can, I, I can offer some sort of historical trajectory here. Uh, obviously, most of these uh, supporters, these court evangelicals of Donald Trump, uh, have been deeply and profoundly shaped by historical forces that really emerged in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And those historical forces are historical forces that. That deal with or address how a good Christian should engage in political or public life now um, some of you leaders I know you are very familiar Rob with this history um, you know uh, because you've lived through it uh, but um, back in the 70s and 80s with the emergence of the moral majority and the so called religious right the Christian right I uh, People like Jerry Falwell Sr. uh, and others were very, very effective in teaching millions and millions of American evangelicals how to do politics and how to think about politics. Uh, When Falwell and the moral majority entered into public life, began to think about an evangelical role in public life, they normally associated it with one or two moral or cultural Uh, issues, Uh, whether usually abortion was at the top of that list, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and then depending on the year, uh, there would be uh, one or two other issues, whether it be stem cell research, gay marriage, religious liberty, whatever that might be. Um, That's the history. Uh, As an American historian, I don't think Jerry Falwell Sr. gets enough credit uh, for the influence that he and others have had in shaping the mindset or the psyche of American evangelical political engagement. Uh, my American history textbook has a couple of uh, maybe a paragraph on Falwell. There should be a whole chapter. I think the moral majority has been the most successful political movement uh, in American history since, um, since world war two. Uh, Because again, Falwell taught an entire generation, and I'm using Falwell here obviously as representative of the entire Christian right of how to do politics, and and that means that Uh, he's constructed a playbook which all of these people his son, Robert Jeffress, Franklin Graham follow Uh, the playbook simply says you elect the right candidates you pour massive amounts of money into electoral politics so you can obtain power so you can control the Supreme Court and you can get Roe v. Wade overturned and a host of other moral issues that are kind of uh, important to evangelicals Uh, there have been multiple, even multiple examples of evangelicals trying to provide alternative visions of political life, of how to engage political life that are not rooted in the pursuit of power, that are not rooted in this kind of nostalgic longing for a a Christian heritage or nation that may have not have ever existed in the first place. But they have largely gotten little... Uh, traction because of the work that uh, Falwell has done. So usually uh, this political playbook that I just mentioned plays itself out uh, with a character that most American evangelical I uh, uh, should say a president that most American evangelicals think has some kind of moral character. Now again, we can debate the moral character of George H.W. Bush or Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush or Mitt Romney or John McCain, right, or Bob Dole, right, all the GOP candidates for president in the last 30 or 40 years. We could debate how their moral integrity, but the point is white evangelicals believe that these men were men of character. Most of them, as you mentioned earlier when you asked the question, do not believe that Trump is necessarily a man of moral character. So the question in 2016 was, would this political playbook that has they have been operating with for 40 years, would this political playbook hold up with a immoral, or as Christianity Today editor Mark Galley called him, a grossly immoral president, I think the answer is it did. So when you have when you have that playbook combined with uh, a general hatred, you know Christians aren't supposed to hate, but they actually, I think, many of them do hate Hillary Clinton. Um, Trump becomes, uh, you know, the political savior. Yeah, I must tell you um,
0: something of a confession here. <laughs> I was present at uh, the Trump inaugural prayer service held at the National Cathedral, not the smaller one held at St. John's uh, Episcopal Church across from the White House, but the one following the inauguration at the National Cathedral. And I saw one of the notable evangelicals that you've named in in our conversation, one of them, I won't say which. Uh, And we had a short exchange, and I I suggested to him that we needed to recalibrate our moral compass yeah. and that one way to do that might be to return to the Sermon on the Mount yeah. as a reference point. And he very quickly barked back at me, we don't have time for that. We have serious work to do. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think your point here, um where at least for this moment, I watched many of the people I've been close to and worked with over uh, decades uh, abandon some of the moral imperatives that even Jerry Falwell Jr. had imparted See. to my generation and yours uh, in, in so many ways. Um, and they suspended that. Uh, for this reason, to get this president in a position of strength and influence, which I see as a moral crisis within American evangelicalism, and and one that I hope and pray we can recover from. I'm I'm generally optimistic about that, although I think we're in for a lot of trouble as we are right now in the meantime. Um, But I'm going to fast-forward you uh, on that note to the conclusion of your book, Believe Me, and if you've just started listening for any reason, I remind you I'm talking with Professor John Thea of Messiah College in Pennsylvania, author of the Eerdmans book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. I highly commend it to you. I hope everybody will put it on your urgent to be read list, and at 191 pages, you have no excuse <laughs> to get through this book as I did in a very uh, reasonable read time. Um, and thank you, uh, John, for for uh, abbreviating it. I know you could have treated it much more exhaustively, but you actually helped a lot of us by keeping it under 200 pages. Thanks for doing that. We can thank my editors for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so often they are the ones right, uh, right. <laughs> responsible for the page count. So, uh, uh, well, good for your editors and good for you for giving them material that that could be, uh, uh, you know, uh, published concisely. But can I take you to the conclusion? To your conclusion of believe me, where you offer us a very hopeful view of the future, and, and I'm going to. Uh, take you to page 181 in particular where you uh, ask the question, what kind of historical examples can we find of Christians living faithfully and engaging politically from positions located outside the corridors of power and privilege? And maybe we should put that in context, why you ask that question about those who are outside the corridors of power and privilege.
1: Well for to, to to get to the sort of sort of macro question there that you're asking, I think Christianity historically has always operated uh, most effectively in terms of advancing the kingdom of God, in terms of being a witness to the world, when it does operate outside the corridors of power, uh, we see this in the fir- with the first century church in Rome. Right, the church grew rapidly during times of persecution, during times in which they did not hold political power. Uh, I think uh, for all of the benefits that came with uh, the con- with Constantine in the fourth century making Christian. Christianity, the official religion of Rome, there also became a lot of negative, uh, uh, dimensions for the church. The church in many ways, once they're in positions of power, they lose their prophetic voice. Uh, they, they are, they have become, uh, the, the nation, they have become the polity and thus they're unable to offer any kind of outsider perspective to critique it. Uh, so we see these problems all throughout, uh, the course of world history, uh, Christianity again always is not a is not a religion that seeks worldly power uh, We are a faith that follows a Jewish carpenter uh, who relinquished power a Jewish carpenter who was also God who relinquished power uh, through death on a cross so, You know, I'm very suspect of the idea of power. I think I've come to to believe that the political sphere, uh, Christians should certainly be involved with it. Christians should be certainly involved in politics. I'm not saying that. But the pursuit of political power to accomplish kingdom ends uh, is always going to lead in bad directions, and that's what kind of brings us back full circle to the court evangelical discussion here that we brought up, we had earlier. But to answer your question about um, the examples of history of those who operate out of positions of power, uh, this kind of hit me right between the eyes in the summer of 2017, Messiah College is a christian college that is committed uh deeply committed to issues of racial reconciliation uh, within our community and as a result uh, every year uh, messiah college sends a group of faculty and staff uh, everybody from the cooks and the bakers and the the, the maintenance staff to professors uh, a number of us are, are you know, we're, we're asked if we want to go and, and we're invited to attend a civil rights bus tour. It's put on by my colleague in the communications department, Todd Allen, who runs it. Uh, I went on that trip. Uh, I am by training an early American historian, so I don't necessarily study or teach the civil rights movement. But as I traveled through the South and we went to every major civil rights city in the South on a 10-day tour, um, it struck me that People like Martin Luther King Jr. and the leaders of the civil rights movement, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ralph Abernathy, um, some of the freedom riders, some of the freedom singers that we met. We met many people along the way who were so-called veterans of the movement. Uh, in fact, we just had our Martin Luther King celebration here on Messiah's campus the other day. We had Minnie Jean uh, Brown, who was one of the Little Rock Nine uh, speaking. Um It struck me that these were uh, Christians, most of them, who were engaged in politics. They were trying to make a political argument. They were trying to bring about change in the world. But certainly, they were not bringing about change from any position of power. Uh, They had suffered. They had lived through uh, segregation and Jim Crow and blatant racism, and they were having water hoses turned upon them. Uh, But yet, When you read their sermons and you listen to King and you listen to some of these civil rights leaders, uh, you have what Reinhold Niebuhr calls, you see what Reinhold Niebuhr, the great 20th century German theologian, German-American theologian, called uh, a theological resistance uh, or a spiritual resistance against resentment, right? They were not angry. They were not Bitter, uh, but they lived in hope. Uh, they they believed that that God was was sovereign. That God was going to lead them uh, through their sufferings and trials. And hope ultimately means that you know it's 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 a it's a belief that one day justice uh, will prevail. Um, they couldn't operate from positions of power. They were they were from small little towns in the south, uh, but yet. Uh, they applied their faith in such a way uh, in which they staged uh, a a revolution, a civil rights revolution. Um, I ask in the end of the book, what the story of this African-American civil rights movement might teach white evangelicals about how to speak prophetically to our culture, how to be people of hope, uh, people of justice, and, you know, ultimately, right, Rob, the kingdom of God is, uh, the new heavens and the new earth is not going to be defined by people pursuing political power, engaging in culture wars, uh, for, for control, but it's going to be characterized by, by love, by peace, by justice. And if we're serious when we pray the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians have the responsibility, I think of living the kingdom to the best that they can and with the power of the Holy spirit. Uh, in their environments today, in the places where God has placed has put them, uh, with their neighbors in their communities, um, and to, to to live those characteristics of the kingdom of God, rather than trying to find uh, the kingdom of God or advance God's causes uh, through the pursuit of power. That's what the civil rights. That's what the civil rights movement taught me uh, and continues to teach me. There's so much to be
0: mined there. And, and I remember, I think King, of course, was, Martin Luther King Jr., that is, was echoing uh, others, right. uh, including church leaders uh, in the, during the German church crisis. The, yes. Uh, Resisters like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like Karl Barth, like Martin Niemöller, and others, uh, were courageously resisting the Nazification, right. uh, the co-optation of the church in Germany. And I, and I like to remind folks, we're talking about the Evangelische Kirche, the evangelical church of Germany. Right. Uh, and King echoed them when he said, the church must be the conscience of the nation. Right. Speak right. to the conscience of the nation. Uh, Neither the lord of the nation
1: nor the servant of the nation, but the conscience of the nation. And I would argue, Rob, as as an American historian, and that's why my book on Trump, I think, is very different from other books uh, on Trump written by Christians. I'm, an, I'm a historian. Now, it's one thing to emphasize. You mentioned this phrase, the conscience of the nation, right? We tend to gravitate towards conscience, right? We are to speak truth. We are to be the moral guardians of our nation, right? We are to exercise uh, conscience in that way. Uh, but don't forget that other word in that phrase, right? The nation. Um, and I want to call American evangelicals in this book uh, – to look back on the way evangelicals have uh, often been uh, on the side of on the side of justice and peace and righteousness, but they've also been uh, involved in some of the darker moments of American history. I think it was Jürgen Moltmann, Jürgen Moltmann who said something to the effect of. Uh, Christians, the uh, historians need to uh, resurrect the past, right? So that we can make meaning of it so that we can see where we've been and we can correct the patterns of, uh, of darkness and so forth that are, that, that are in the past. Again, I, I'm often criticized by my fellow evangelicals for painting a picture of evangelicalism that is very dark and, you know, very negative. Um, you know, I'd be happy also one day, maybe I will write a, write a history of American evangelicalism that celebrates some of the great, uh uh, social movements that evangelicals have led. But I don't think it is that bright, hopeful side of evangelicalism. The the king, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, whether we call him an evangelical or not, we can debate that. Uh, or the evangelicals who fought against slavery, or the evangelicals who are bringing clean water today to to the poor in African communities, right? Um That is not the evangelicalism that it seemed like 81% of white evangelicals tapped into historically when they voted for Donald Trump. Instead, they tapped into some of those darker moments. When evangelicals were leading uh, causes like nativism or, or were um, involved in advancing slavery in the South or when they were uh, acting in the public square with such certainty and such fundamentalism uh, that they were we're incapable of understanding uh, alternative viewpoints. It is that dimension of evangelicalism that I think Trump tapped into. So when we talk about the conscience of the nation, I think we need to begin with the past, right? And we need to think about where we've been. Let's come to grips with that uh, as we move forward and try to speak truth to power.
0: Well, with that, I regrettably uh, will bring uh temporary end to our conversation. Uh-huh. I certainly hope we can talk again, and uh, I think I speak for all of us at the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute in uh, expressing uh, not only thanks for this conversation, but uh, an invitation to future conversations, perhaps even in person, if we might try to lure you to Washington, D.C., uh, to help us uh, in our formation of future uh, evangelical leaders. And and with that, uh, I'll let you uh, prayerfully uh, contemplate that possibility. But uh, maybe I'll leave uh, our folks who are with us on the podcast here with this quote from your book, page 190. It's the penultimate page. And you say this, evangelicals can do better than Donald Trump. His campaign and presidency have drawn on a troubling uh, pattern of American evangelicalism that is willing to yield to old habits grounded in fear, nostalgia, and the search for power. Too many leaders and their followers have traded their Christian witness for a mess of political pottage and a few federal judges. Yeah. That's a very sober critique. But you couch it in a message of hope uh, for the future of American evangelicalism. Are you generally optimistic about the future of American evangelicalism or pessimistic?
1: Well, That's a, that's a great question. It's, you know, again, again, I'm a historian, so I, am not sure how to predict the future, right?
0: (laughs) But, um, you know, You're you're good at looking back. I look at, I look at,
1: I'll tell you what, what gives me hope. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with 18 to 22 year olds and they give me hope. 18 to 22 year olds, evangelicals. I see what they're passionate about, passionate about. I see, that they want to um, be kingdom uh, people, I, uh, you know, people who are citizens of God's of God's kingdom, and to live out those attributes. Um, I also get pessimistic because I also run into a lot of eighteen to twenty year old two year old evangelicals who are just disillusioned with Christianity. Uh, they see what their elders have told them uh, about issues like truth. Defending truth, speaking pa- truth, uh, speaking truth to power. Uh, they've taught them these lessons over the years, and now they see their elders are not uh, are not consistent with, uh, or following through, or hypocritical with uh, with some of these issues in their support of Donald Trump. And they're getting disillusioned, and they're leaving the church. Uh, ultimately, I think God is on the throne. God is sovereign, and. We have to hope. We have to cling to that kind of hope, uh, and and that's always going to leave me. Uh, that's always going to leave me with a positive uh, way of thinking about these things.
0: Well, in in my own thoughts, as I read through your book, believe me, the evangelical road to Donald Trump. As I read through it, I, I, you touch on so many Bonhoefferian themes, which are very important to us and to this podcast, uh, Talking Bonhoeffer, including the, the hope that you offer us in the, the story of the civil rights struggle uh, in the United States and the, the wonderful figures that emerge from it, people of, uh, of faith, and hope, and love, uh, and, and I thank you for that because, of course, that crosses over into Bonhoeffer's experience at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem in the 1930s when he saw great hope for his own country through the struggles of black Christians here in the United States. That's right. And, and you kind of finish off with that uh, in the book, and, uh, and that's a great way uh, to do it. But even this uh, sober reflection brings to mind my own encounter with one of the last living persons to talk with Bonhoeffer before he was hanged, uh, Hans uh, or uh, Franz von Hammerstein. He was in his 90s when I met him. Mm. And he had been a teenager when he was arrested and was uh, in a cell with Bonhoeffer, and Uh, in that last conversation they had, uh, Franz von Hammerstein told me that that Bonhoeffer uh, said to him, it will be your task to rebuild the church in Germany. Yeah, And offered this young man, this teenager, that vision of the future of rebuilding. And you leave us with a similar challenge to rebuild what has been lost. So, Thanks for giving us the gift of, believe me, the evangelical road to Donald Trump. Uh, Folks who are listening, if you're an evangelical, please make this required reading for yourself. Uh, But if you're not an evangelical, it will answer a lot of your nagging questions about we evangelicals (laughs) and how we behave, (laughs) particularly in this era. John, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, esteemed professor, for spending the time with all of us here at Shank Talks Spunhofer. I hope it won't be the last
1: conversation. Well, I appreciate all the work that you're doing, Rob. I'm a big fan. Um, I'm just learning more about what you're doing there in Washington, D.C. And uh, to go back to something you mentioned earlier, uh, I'm happy to help whenever I can. I'm only two hours up here, uh, two hours north. So, well, thank you.
0: Thank you. And and we plan to tap you uh, in the brighter future. I've been talking with John Thea, author of Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, published by Erdman's. Get a hold of it right away and please share it uh, as an instrument of hope for others. Thanks for listening.